When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest Gregor Gall. Gregor is a visiting professor of industrial relations at the University of Glasgow, and is also the editor of the Scottish Left Review magazine, director of the Jimmy Reed Foundation, and a regular contributor to various newspaper and magazines. Gregor's latest book is The Punk Rock Politics of Joe Strummer and is published by Manchester University Press. Gregor, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me on, Bradley. Can you please briefly share with us what your book is about? Yes, so it's about Joe Strummer, who some people will know was the lead singer and main lyricist for The Clash. After the demise of The Clash, he had a kind of barren period in his life. Uh, and then he came back into our public attention with the band called The Mescaleros. And the book is primarily about the politics of Joe Strummer, uh, which were left-wing progressive radical politics, and the influence that that had on people of my generation, um, people who were in their teenage years in the late, 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, and how he inspired and sustained people to... Uh, become on the left, become left activists, whether they were in unions, community campaigns, or political parties. So you open your book saying that uh, when you bought the Clash's album London Calling in 1980, it sparked a fascination with Strummer's politics for you for well over four decades, so much so that you defined yourself as a Clashist rather than a socialist. Can you share what you mean by that? Yes. I mean, when when I uh, said that to a school friend, I was probably only about 13 years old, so I was familiar with the term socialist, but I didn't really understand what it was about. And because of that lack of knowledge and that, if you like, that immaturity, um, I had a much closer association and identification with The Clash in terms of being a band that was um, very passionate, very energetic, very important for somebody of my young years then. And the politics that I did have at that point in time were were very much bound up with the clash. So they were uh, anti-imperialist, uh, anti-oppression, anti-exploitation, but not, in my mind at that time, not very clear what they were for. It was much more clear what they were against rather than what they were for. Now, of course, if you're a socialist, then it's clear that you would be against certain things as well as being for uh, a different form of society where the majority of people in, in that society, the working class, would um, run society in their image and for their benefits. So I, I think I was trying to allude to the fact that um, when I was of that tender age of 13, um, I had an understanding of the clash and what they were about, but it was a relatively superficial one. So you write in your book that you consider Strummer standing amongst the tallest of politically progressive rock and rollers. But after his death in 2002, you noted that tens of thousands of fans would message his site and say that Strummer had changed their lives in some way. But you recognized that there was no formal study of his politics. How did you approach that topic and what were some of the challenges? Um, well, I first of all, um, to sorry if this sounds a little immodest, but I first of all approached it from a position of some knowledge and awareness because Throughout the time that Strummer was in the clash and thereafter, I did follow what he was doing. I was an avid reader of the music press in Britain, uh, not so much aware of what was going on in terms of American the, the American music press, but certainly the British music press. So I was aware of what he said and what he'd done and various other things. And I uh, then when um, a number of... Uh, books were published on Strummer and or The Clash after Strummer's death in 2002, such as Chris Salovich's um, biography of him, which is about 600 pages long, I, I came to the realisation that those books were primarily primarily written by music journalists who had very limited knowledge and awareness and interest 
in the politics of Joe Strummer. And therefore, I thought there was, if you were, a gap, not just in the market, but a gap in knowledge about Strummer's politics. And while um, I wouldn't say that Strummer was, if you like, 100% um, political to his core, he enjoyed taking drugs, he enjoyed playing music, he was a hedonist of sorts. It was clear that Strummer, more than anybody else in the clash, but also more than many other lead front persons of bands, was political, was very left-wing, and I thought that that needed to be studied. In terms of um, the way I approached it, um, the the phrase that Strummer was told many, many times in his life was that he and the Clash had changed these people's lives. People either said that about him or directly to him. And it struck me um, that I heard that so many times that I wanted to, to discover what they meant by that. Was it that it was simply a case of The Clash was a great rock and roll band and that inspired people to play musical instruments, take up the guitar? Or was there something more profound to that in terms of the political influence that Strummer uh, as the main Clash lyricist had over them. And so I ended up taking testimony from about 120 people uh, in order to provide the evidence base for the book that I wrote. And um, what I did was I reached out to various people that I knew and through a sort of snowballing process, if somebody said, uh, you know, I contacted them and said, tell me with these questions that I've asked you, what the influence of Strummer was on you, I also asked them to recommend others. And that process led me to um, get testimony from about 120 people. Subsequent to the publication of the book um, at the end of June this year, having done many um, meetings, book launch meetings, I found out many more people. So I think that the extent of Strummer's influence is greater than I was able to portray in the book, um, both obviously in the quantitative terms but also in terms of the qualitative terms, how much of an influence he was on people. So I was able to do that. And of course, just as a a kind of um, caveat or rider, um, those people did also mention other people being important to them, the likes of Paul Weller from The Jam and then the Style Council, Billy Bragg. But it was still, still clear nonetheless that Joe Strummer had an influence that was Um, very substantial uh, and had a longevity to it on these people. And some of them ended up becoming the likes of general secretaries of unions in Britain. So the main analytical framework in your book is based on the study of socialist realism, which is what you also say is the framework Strummer used for writing lyrics for The Clash. What is socialist realism and how how was that reflected in his lyrics? So... I think the more common um, phrase or terminology that some people might be aware of is a phrase called, or a, or a two words called, social realism. Social realism is um, the, in, in cultural terms, you know, through music, through art, and so on. It is the identification of common everyday problems, which many would then go on to attribute to um, living under a capitalist society or living under industrial society. So those are the two key foundations. One, to identify problems that the ordinary people face. It might be unemployment, lack of educational opportunities, lack of a welfare state. And then to, as I say, to attribute that to a system. So there's a systematic or a structural explanation of those uh, problems that exist for many people. Um, so that's that's an important basis. But w- what I noted in, and saw in Strummer is that he went a bit further. And therefore, that's why I tried to develop this framework of not social realism, but socialist realism, whereby the extra and critical uh, added ingredient or added component is that Strummer also said, yes, these are the problems. This is, uh, the, this is where the problems come from. And then, critically, this is what we could think about doing about them. So essentially to propose an alternative to the way that current society uh, is run and and whose benefit is is run. And although um, Strummer starts off his um, musical career primarily with a band called the 101ers, which was a pub rock band before he is recruited to join the Clash in 1976. There's a time when he's not particularly political. It takes a few years, but certainly from the late 1970s through to the late 1980s, period of you know 10 years at least, 
He is uh, an avowed socialist. He publicly identifies as this. And then he starts through his lyrics and through his public pronouncements and various interviews he does, he starts to pronounce on socialism his particular version of it. And clearly in the process of doing that, he supports the likes of the Sandinistas who had uh, deposed Samosa in Nicaragua in um, the late 1970s. He supports other national liberation movements. He's very anti-Reagan, very anti-Thatcher. So um, what I identified there was something that Strummer did that was over and above just, if you like, complaining about the situation, but also proposing to do something about it, even if, as I explain in the book, um, Strummer did that in very general terms. He never set out a roadmap or a rule book by which people should act. So in one of your earlier responses, you were talking about how this book kind of came as a response to how music writers and journalists would often characterize Strummer. And you have found in your research that they often use contrasting labels to describe Joe, such as anarchist, class warrior, revolutionist. And you also point out that from a music journalist perspective, writing about Strummer's lyrics and characterizing his politics from those lyrics is is problematic. Why is that? Yes. Um, well, first of all, in terms of the music journalists, um, uh, they have certain skills, um, but they are not political scientists. And so when it came to um, them trying to say something about his politics, which, as I say, was not a common trait, but when they did do that, their ability to do so, I think, was not very strong. So they would use terms which I think they had a limited understanding of. So, for example, if if a, a music journalist was was to call Strummer, as many did, a Marxist, they would not appreciate that the key uh, aspect of Marxism, certainly orthodox Marxism, is that the emancipation of the working class to create a social society is the act of the working class. And what I mean by that is that essentially a socialist revolution would be created by workers themselves, not by any other third parties, not by any other social forces on behalf of workers. Workers would have to do so themselves. And and if that didn't happen, then it wouldn't be um, a socialist revolution. It wouldn't create a social society. So that's the kind of thing that was was I think was clearly missing when particularly the music journalists um, did that. But others, uh, such as academics, have um, analysed Strummer's political activity and his lyrics and so on. And I think many of them were also, unfortunately, rather lacklustre and rather lacking in the way that they defined his politics. So some said that Strummer was an anarchist. He certainly had libertarian tendencies, but that didn't mean he was an anarchist. Some said that he was um, a revolutionary. Uh, And what I end up doing in the book is looking at all the different characterizations of Strummer, um, critiquing them, and I suppose what I end up showing in the end, uh, in terms of my own analysis of Strummer, is that he had a kind of schizophrenic tendency. If he was talking about politics in Britain, he was very much in favour of the Labour Party, and he often called the Labour Party a socialist party, which I think is a, is a, is a massive stretch of, uh, of credulity. Um, but outside Britain, he was much more Maoist in as much as he believed that the social forces that could bring about political change, progressive political change, would be the oppressed, would be the downtrodden, would be migrants. And that partly explains why he was so enamoured with different liberation, national liberation movements, whether it be in Nicaragua or El Salvador or parts of Southeast Asia. Um, so I identified what what he was in terms of those pronouncements, pronouncements that he made, uh, what he said in his lyrics, and I categorised them by... Um, the, the different ways in which um, political strategies and political worldviews are formed. And so that's why, as I say, I categorise them as a social democrat, so somebody who essentially believes that parliament, or you know, whether it's in the United States, it would be Congress, can, through indirect um, representation, you elect a, a, sen- a senator or a um, member of the House of Representatives, they would do something on your behalf, you wouldn't do it directly yourself. Um, so that was true, as I say, in Britain, but outside of Britain. Um, and he had a great knowledge of the world for a musician and for a lyricist. As I say, he was rather much more enamoured with these uh, national liberation movements. 
uh, and he never particularly stressed the role of the working class as the agency of revolutionary change. So one of the topics that you kind of address in the book when it comes to inaccuracies from music writers and journalists is that they often interpret that what Joe is singing about is about class, but you write that he did not often use the term class or address class. And you explore these counterbalances to these inaccurate claims. And one quote I found really interesting came from the Washington Post, which said of the clash, Chuck Berry remains the guiding principle, not Karl Marx. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. Um, I would just first of all say that, of course, I didn't have the opportunity to interview Joe Strummer. So um, that means that I couldn't pose some of the questions that I would have wanted to had I been able to interview him. And quite rightly, as you say, um, if I, you know, you, you were alluding to, if I had been able, if I had had that opportunity, I would have said to him, do you use the term, as he most commonly did, have and have nots, that is to say the rich and the poor, do you use those terms in a conscious way because you think that using the language of class uh, will either be uh, to alienate people or it will be to um, use a term that they're not familiar with? Are you using it as a cipher, as a kind of um, more digestible, accessible term than class, particularly class if in, in radical or Marxist terms? So you'll be talking about the working class, the middle class, the ruling class. I think that um, there's possibly an element of that, but I think the bigger component of it is that Strummer, because he wasn't a Marxist, he didn't see class in those terms middle class, ruling class, working class, he didn't see class as being that central to his analysis of the way that the world worked under capitalism. Um, But as I say, you know, because I didn't have the opportunity to speak to him about those issues, that must remain a point which um, is maybe rather more speculative than I would wish it to be. Having said all that, um, I think it is also the case that because he spoke in those more general terms, it's probably the case that he was able to speak to a wider audience in a way that they understood. And that I think that's something that is very much a character of Joe Strummer. I've already made the point that he didn't um, provide a rule book or a, a roadmap to what people should do if people who listened to his lyrics and listened to his interviews agreed with what he was saying. He was, um, if you like, a generalist rather than a, rather being more specific about it. And I think those are the kind of factors which lead to his influence being more universal and more um, timeless. You know, it stretches across the decades. It can also stretch across geographic areas. And that's why um, certainly I make the case in the book that his legacy is a strong one, but it's also one that is relatively long-lasting. And I say that as a social scientist, if we are really to get a handle on his uh, legacy, then we would probably need to look back from the standpoint of um, 2052, which would be 50 years after his death and 70 or 80 years after um, after he was in the clash, which is the kind of thing that people are now able to do with the likes of Woody Guthrie. So you're saying that Strummer's legacy is a very long one, and I completely agree. I he's a was a personal hero of mine throughout my life, and he's somebody whose broadness I think speaks to a lot of people of different backgrounds and different ideas. And he's certainly praised, albeit largely praised on the left. You write in your book that he received a, a fair amount of criticism, not just from the right, but also those on the left of the political spectrum. What were some of those criticisms? Well, one of the main criticisms um, was that Strummer could have done a lot more than he did in terms of supporting left-wing causes, which um, I think is is true, but it's also only a kind of partial picture because if you were to compare him to other people, um, he did do a lot more than many of those um, lyricists and leaders of bands that uh, are on the left somewhere. Um, so it's kind of, you know... It, when, when people say uh, he could have done more, it's both true but not true. So, for example, during the miners' strike, which is, which is a year-long strike uh, in Britain between 1984 and 1985 and was the high point of working-class struggle in the post-war period since 1945, 
Uh, the Clash only ended up playing two benefit gigs for the uh, minors. I went to one of them on the 7th of December 1984. It, they were both uh, about 5,000 people attended those gigs uh, at the Brixton Academy in London. Now, by comparison... That, so that strike was uh, that those benefit gigs were quite late in the day. The strike ran from March eighty four to March eighty five. So to be well into the strike, um, the class play those gigs uh, really towards the end of the strike essentially. And in the meantime, the Redskins, a band, Three Johns, another band, Billy Bragg, played endless benefit gigs for the miners, albeit not to the not to um, audiences of five thousand. Paul Weller, who was in the jam and then had formed Style Council, he uh, organised a, a benefit single, you know, a, um, a 45 RPM that was released uh, to raise money for the miners. So Strummer, and the, as the leader of the Clash, could have done more in that particular period, which was critical because if the miners had won that strike, then it was um, hard to believe that the Thatcher government would have continued. It would have, I think it would have collapsed. However, on other occasions, whether it was playing the Rock, Rock Against Racism Festival against the Nazis uh, on the 30th of April 1978 in London at Victoria Park or playing the Firefighters um, gig in uh, on the 15th of November 2002 in support of striking firefighters, Strummer did do many of those things. So he was good, I think, overall at supporting causes through, through benefit gigs. But the rider that I make in, in the book is that he was an advocate rather than an activist. And yes, it would have been a big challenge to, to be both an active musician and a political activist, although some have managed to do that. And that's, I think, where Strummer's, uh, Strummer's weakness, one of his weaknesses, um, comes to the fore. So um, it's partly because of what Strummer said in his lyrics, in his interviews, when he when he made uh, pronouncements when he was um, you know playing live, the expectations of him were built up that he would then do other things outside the lyrics, outside playing live, and I think those expectations are, on the whole, uh, legitimate and valid, and that's why the criticism that he could and should have done more also stands up to scrutiny. I would have thought that Strummer could have done much more, should have done much more by supporting other causes. I mean, the one example that he did do, which he took up his time and his money and his energy, was to play a, a two or three week um, tour throughout Britain in 1988, which was called Rock Against the Rich. Uh, it was the time when what we would call in Britain yuppies, very much um, rich people in the city in London flaunting their wealth, um, buying up different parts of London and so on, and gentrifying, gentrifying areas and pushing out, you know, people who couldn't live there anymore. That was a tour that he played. Um, he brought his band over from America, which was Latino rockabilly war, and included people like um, Xander Slosh, who was in the Circle Jerks. He brought them across to Britain, uh, paid their flights, their accommodation, their wages. And then that tour needed to be bailed out um, because it was loss-making. And he did that to the sum of £27,000 in 1988, which is not an insubstantial amount of money. So that's a, uh, you know, a great virtue that he did, but I think he could have done more of that sort of thing. He could have also brought together different people to act in a way that, for example, Paul Weller did when he formed the, um, the collective that released the single in support of the miners. So when you say that he could have done more, does this feed into the idea in your book where you consider him more of an advocate than an activist? And if so, what is necessarily the, the difference between being an advocate and an activist? Yes, it, it is. And that's why there is a chapter um, with that specific title. Um, any activist, political activist, community activist, union activist, is necessarily uh, in the first instance, an advocate of saying that something is not right, something is morally wrong, there's an injustice, it's morally reprehensible. But they also go on, because they're an activist, and do something about it. They might recruit people to a union, uh, to a tenants' association, um, they might organise a strike, that kind of thing. So Strummer was uh, good as an advocate. He, he understood, I think, very much that through the clash in particular, he had created a, a platform by which he could disseminate radical views. And 
I say that because I think it was clear at certain points in time, particularly uh, around the, the period of 1983 to 1986, which is the last phase of the clash, where he understood his role, which was to cam- uh, say campaign, certainly in rhetorical terms, against Thatcher, against Reagan, against nuclear war, against US imperialism. He understood that. But what he didn't do, partly because it really wasn't in his personality, in his kind of personal makeup, he didn't then do the kind of thing that Billy Bragg did or even Bono did, which was to start to do something about the various things he was saying. So Billy Bragg, as an example, who is probably not that well known in the States, but Billy Bragg has campaigned for constitutional change. He set up uh, an organisation called uh, Jail Guitar Doors, which is based on a the title of a class song, which is about taking musical instruments into prisons in Britain so that people who are spending time having been locked up in prison can do something that is beneficial to themselves, but also, if you like, develop a skill and potentially develop their self-confidence and so on. Billy Billy Bragg has done those kind of things. I'm not so sure that I think what um, Bono has done in terms of um, trying to, if you like... um, excuse the phrase, arsenic, the likes of uh, George Bush in terms of saying that America should um, cancel some third world debt and so on. I'm not so sure that that's the, the, the best parallel, but certainly Billy Bragg is a better example of what somebody who is a musician, first and foremost, can also do to support the very things that they're saying about, so to put um, some uh, you know meat on the bones of what they're saying in terms of their, their political values and so on. And as I've alluded to, certainly in an interview, Strummer said that he didn't think he was an organiser. Again, excuse the phrase, but it's one that we use in Britain. Strummer wouldn't have been very good at organising a piss-up in a brewery. Um, So he did recognise that. But um, still, as I say, because of the expectations that were of him, um, he didn't do those things. And if I could just add a couple more instances. At the beginning of the clash in, say, 76-77, Strummer made a number number of promises. He was clearly buoyed up by the success and attention that the clash was having. Um, I don't mean in an, an egotistical way, but they had broken through and they were starting to make a difference to people's lives. And he said he would make four, he made four pledges. One was that he would set up a, a new radio station, which was going to play punk and in alternative music. He said he was going to set up an alternative venue which was going to be called um, Buckingham Palais. So that was a, a play on Buckingham Palace and Hammersmith Palais. He said he was going to set up um, a workers' cooperative that was going to um, publish the music, um, certainly under um, the kind of legal setup in Britain. Uh, if you sign a contract with CBS, as The Clash did, you still had your... Uh, the publishing of the lyrics and of the music would be handled by a different uh, legal entity. Um, So he said he would set up something like that, and that was to be done originally with uh, Elvis Costello. And the other thing he said was he was going to set up a a music um, programme on television. So he made quite big pledges because he was flush with the success, but also the initial £100,000 signing fee that The Clash had gained from CBS Records. And he didn't do any of those things. He actually did try to some extent on some of them, but he, they were more um, promises of, if you like, well-intentioned ambition rather than thinking about the, the practicalities of it. So he made those pledges, and then, of course, he was pulled up for not delivering on them. So maybe he was rather naive, maybe he was rather immature to make those big pledges, but... Certainly people took him seriously when he said those things. And, of course, the downside was that um, people were critical of him when he didn't do those things. Now, those were not, um, if you like, the same as encouraging people to join a political party or a union, but they would have made a massive difference politically because Strummer understood, as I've tried to already suggest, that in order to make um, political statements and to bring people to the left and to counter the right, particularly the fascist right, you needed to engage in cultural activities, you needed to produce cultural goods and artefacts and clearly a radio station, um, uh, a venue, a live venue, that would have helped do all those things. So let's talk about how Strummer leveraged The Clash as a platform. 
the other members of the clash were not apolitical, but politics were not part of their core as beings. What were their politics and how did they feel about Strummer using their band as a platform? So if we just deal with Mick Jones, um, Mick Jones um, was generally on the left. Um, he came from a, a, a Jewish background, so he very much was uh, an anti-fascist and anti-racist. But he, so sorry, I just take a step back. Mick Jones was primarily the person who arranged uh, the, the music of The Clash. He was the musical, musical composer. And um, it's important to say that if Joe Strummer's lyrics hadn't in the main been set to the music that Mick Jones had created, then they probably wouldn't have had the appeal and the influence that they did. So Mick Jones's um, part in all this has to be duly acknowledged. But Mick Jones was much more wanting to be a, a rock and roll star, a pop star. He has later in his life supported different causes, particularly the what's called the Hillsborough 96, which was where... 96 football fans in Sheffield were crushed to death as a result of police negligence. So he supported various causes, but he was never a socialist. He never identified himself as a socialist. Paul Simonon, um, the the bass player who started after a while to have some musical influence in terms of the clash and its reggae influence, he um, was not particularly self-confident, not particularly articulate, he did later on um, join um, uh, a Greenpeace action where he was arrested when they occupied an oil rig. That was about 10 years ago. Um, so later in life, he has some political activity. Topper, Nicker, Nicky Topperhead and the drummer um, hasn't really got any political influences to talk about. And as I point out in the book, he did actually graffiti a swastika on the um, record case of uh, a DJ who worked with The Clash who had a Jewish background, so uh, a reprehensible act in itself, even if it was kind of of a shock value rather than subscribing to fascist views. So Strummer is quite clearly the person who is motivated by politics more than anyone else in The Clash. The question you pose is a very interesting one, which is what was the relationship um, between Strummer and the other members of The Clash uh, politically? I think it's fair to say that they deferred to Strummer, one, because he was older, but two, because he was much more politically clued up, much more worldly and much more knowledgeable. And I found no evidence that um, the other members of the Clash ever challenged Joe Strummer's views in terms of when Joe Strummer was speaking for the Clash and was essentially, it was a case of Joe Strummer articulating the politics of the clash. He may have discussed with them certain things before he made public statements or said things on stage, but he may not have done. So there's no evidence that they contradicted him. But at the same time, there's no evidence that they particularly um, went out of their way to support what he was saying either. So they have a slightly uh, ambiguous role in that. And I suppose one of the virtues of that is that Strummer has a clear run at saying what he thinks as forming really for the public, that is, what the uh, the politics of the clash are. And again, to reiterate a point, he was well aware that he had an opportunity to do so and took it to full advantage, particularly in that latter period of the of 83 to 86. Um, he did that much more than other, any other people, um, including the likes of, uh, of Paul Weller. In your book, there's a really interesting quote I want to read, and it's, for a musician who liked being part of a collective, Strummer was often a lone voice with few able allies in terms of other musicians and artists and saw himself as such. Can you tell us more about that? One of the things was that although Strummer worked with other people, um, whether it was in The Clash or Latino Rockabilly War or The Mescaleros, he always said, essentially, I'm, I am the leader of this band uh, and I will write the lyrics. Um, obviously, Mick Jones did write some lyrics for The Clash, but other than remote control and comp- and complete control, which were essentially about the uh, infringements upon his, that is Mick Jones's artistic freedom, Joe Strummer wrote all the lyrics for The Clash that were the political ones. And even um, when Topperhead and Nicky Topperhead and the drummer was starting to create some of the, the music for... Um, what became Combat Rock. Strummer was quite clear to him and said, no, I write the lyrics. Uh, And that's interesting because later on in life, um, around the time of the Mescaleros, Paul Heaton, 
who was the main lyricist for the House Martins and then became the main lyricist for the, um, uh, sorry, I've forgotten the name now, um, The Beautiful South, he, he tried to work with Strummer and Strummer wouldn't do so because Strummer wanted to be the lyricist. So th- there was a limit to what Strummer would, was willing to do in terms of collaboration with others, in terms of lyrics. But more widely, um, he felt that he had a particular ability and a platform that meant that he was more able to say uh, things in a, in a way that had mass appeal, that had credibility than any other. So as a result, he was critical of the likes of Crass, the anarchist punk band. He was critical of the likes of um, Big Country and U2, who sort of dabbled slightly in... Um, probably left left liberal politics rather than radical left politics. And he said that really it was down to him to uh, take up this kind of the, the responsibility and make the case against Thatcher and Reagan and, and offer some kind of alternative. So um, while he clearly had tremendous skills in doing so, I think it would have still been the case that if he had collaborated with other people, his um, influence might have been in the round or for the ideas he was espousing even greater. And the most obvious uh, case in point is that when Paul Weller and Billy Bragg set up the Red Wedge organisation to support the Labour Party to really try to undermine Thatcherism, Joe Strummer wouldn't have anything to do with it. In fact, he went the opposite way, uh, played some benefits for um, the Green Party. So there was a thing called Green Wedge, and then the thing that I referred to earlier, he uh, supported and bankrolled and fronted this tour uh, by the anarchist group Class War, even though he himself wasn't an anarchist. And that became known as Black Wedge because black is the colour associated with anarchism. So he could have he could have allied with himself, with other people, and I think had a bigger, more collective influence. But because of his personality, his belief in his own abilities, he chose not to do so. So I want to go back and talk a little bit about the criticisms of Strummer and his politics. And one of the criticisms of Strummer is that the Clash often had elements of machismo and sexism in their image and music, with Strummer theoretically not motivated to write from a feminist perspective. And we, when we think about activism now, and especially from the lens of intersectional politics, you know, there certainly is valid criticism in that. What is your perspective, and can you share an example? Yes, um, I think that um, the issue of women's rights, feminism, support for women's rights is the great uh, weakness, the great blind spot in Joe Strummer as a lyricist, but also, uh, as I'll mention, as, a, as a, an individual human being. Um, if you go through um, the, the kind of clash canon and then extend it forward into Latino rockabilly war and the Mescaleros, the one thing that Strummer hardly ever writes about, hardly ever makes pronouncements on, are the issues of women. And I know it's rather cliched, but just to make the point absolutely bluntly, Around 50%, if not a bit more, of the world's population are women. That was true you know, back then as it is now. And yet he had so little to say about women. Um, so you could think about, well, the Slits, an all-women punk band, opened for The Clash on 30-odd occasions. Um, the Slits themselves were not a particularly feminist band. They were more famous by the fact that they were a young band who were all women playing in male environments. They didn't actually expose um, uh, explicit feminist lyrics in their songs, but that's not that's not a very high bar to set to have a band open for you, um, even if it's that number of times. And when it's not clear that Joe Strummer was the person who said we're we're having the slits open for ourselves, not in anybody else. I say that because both Mick Jones and Joe Strummer had uh, you know intimate sexual relations with two of the members of the slits. So that's not a very good example. Then you look at the song Lovers Rock from the London Calling 1979 album. Uh, it's one one of the few examples where Strummer pronounces on issues to do with women, and that's to do with the contraceptive pill, which he argued in the song uh, could end up uh, with women putting on weight because of the uh, 
uh, if you like, the medical effects of that pill. And one other song is um, off Cut the Crap, the last um, Clash album in 1985, which uh, was originally called Sex Mad War, but ended up being called Sex Mad Roar as a result of Bernie Rhodes' influence in that album. And it's about the safety of women um, being able to you know, walk at night and so on. So those are very, very few examples. And a number of people who have looked at this previously to me writing about the Strummer's uh, politics in, in, in the book that I wrote uh, argued that at best Strummer was non-sexist. He certainly wasn't sexist, but he wasn't also anti-sexist. And when there is women's oppression in society, I think it does behove somebody like Strummer to go further than being non-sexist, but to become anti-sexist. And then you look at the likes of um, Hell West 10, which was a black and white silent movie that Strummer um, filmed in 1983. All the women characters in there are very, very um, submissive and, and subordinate. Then you look at Strummer's own personal behaviour. Um, he was serially unfaithful to the uh, the mother of his children, his long-term partner, Gabby Salter. So it, it is the big um, blind spot, although that's maybe to, to be too uh, generous to Strummer, it is the big weakness that he, um, that he had. And yes, um, some people have argued that this is really what was to be expected by men of this period, you know, back in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, we've moved on since then. But actually, at the end of his life, um, at the this um, benefit gig that he played for the firefighters, um, only about six, uh, sorry, four weeks before he died, um, the two women that organised or asked Strummer and the Mescaleros to play this gig, uh, two women firefighters, um, they uh, they did it. They were successful. You know, they got him to change his tour dates and do it. And yet, he still um, used the term "firemen" as opposed to "fire firefighters," which is not gender specific. When he uh, talked, um, you know, during the gig, in between songs, and uh, thanked and supported the firefighters for um, for uh, what they were doing. So, you know, he was. I wouldn't go as far to say he was an un- unreconstructed. Um, uh, male in that sense, but he could have done a lot better and a lot more. And I think if you think about the men that were involved in the left that did support the um, the feminist uh, wave of the late 60s and early 70s, there's no reason why he couldn't have been like that. He had uh, embodied and espoused the radical politics of that era, but um, on the issue of women, um, for reasons which I hope I've given some indication of, he didn't choose to go down that path. And I, I don't shirk from um, from criticising him for doing so. Another point of criticism of Strummer is that while he made anti-violent statements on stage, there were a lot of instances of him attacking people or journalists off stage, which complicates his image as a peacenik. Um, can you share with us you know, some of that perspective? Yes, I think this is also a, a troubling aspect where you um, you look at a person's um, public uh, um, espousal of politics and then you look for some consistency in their personal life. And the reason I think it's important to do that is because if somebody espouses something in their public life but it's known that they don't... Um, Act in a in a you know a consistent and compatible manner in their personal life, then one they're going to be called a hypocrite, and two it's going to undermine the worth of what they're saying publicly, and so um, Strummer um, had a kind of um, uneasy relationship with the issues of violence, um, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So quite clearly he condemned the violence of the oppressor. But he also supported the use of violence by the oppressed. So, for example, he was very much in favour of the Sandinista revolution, an armed revolution against the Somoza regime in Nicaragua that was supported by the United States. Um, And then, of course, thereafter, um, through the likes of uh, Colonel Oliver North and the Contras, there was an attempt um, to undermine the uh, the Nicaraguan government uh, after that revolution, so he was he was quite clear, you know, sup- sup- 
condemning the, the violence of the oppressor, supporting the use of violence by the oppressed where they thought that was necessary. So that's all well and good. Um, and he obviously is against the violence of the Nazis and the fascists and so on. He's against uh, 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 violence in terms of the imposition of poverty on people. But you would expect, therefore, somebody in their personal life, in band relations, um, relations with journalists um, and entourages, to not be a person who was prone to have outbursts of violence. And unfortunately, Strummer was. Now, some people, I think, would 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 be willing to give Strummer a kind of um, get-out-of-jail card here by saying, well, he was a very passionate, energetic person, and sometimes his, uh, if you like, his temper or his passion got the better of him. So, for example, um, at one point, um, uh, I think I'm right in saying, from, this is uh, in the late 1970s, Mick Jones didn't want to play White Riot anymore um, because he believed that it was kind of out of time uh, from when it was written in 1976 and it was uh, released as a single in April 1977. And a couple of years, maybe two, two or three years later down the line, um, it's usually the encore that the Clash play before they leave the stage for the final time that night at a gig. And uh, Mick Jones says, I'm not willing to play it. And Strummer um, maybe says something to him and then he punches him in the face, uh, bloodies his nose. Now, um, while you could understand that maybe Strummer didn't have the time to make an argument as to why you should go on and play that um, you know, that song. Certainly resorting to violence is not something that I think that we could say was in any way justified. And there, there are many other examples of that, particularly with regard to, to bandmates, but also, as you've alluded to, with journalists as well. So I think that we, this is all part and parcel of a process which I hope to have achieved in the book, which is to recognise the very... Um, obvious and sizable, considerable strengths that Strummer has, but that doesn't mean you put him on a pedestal. There unfortunately are many people who are Strummer fans and followers who have canonised him, or if you're familiar with the kind of the way the Catholic Church works, canonise him or beatify him um, and, and do put him at that level, which means that really um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a funny way of saying that you really can't criticise Strummer and raise raise these points because he has uh, done so much, so many other great things that it just uh, negates any criticism of him. Um, we have to understand Strummer was an individual. He was a human being. He was um, a person who was relatively complex. Artists quite often are quite complex people. That's part of what makes them often as great as they are. But I think, as I say, we need to recognise him so that we don't make him out to be something that he wasn't. So you just spoke about the canonization of Joe Strummer by really avid fans of his, which complicates his legacy or maybe even secures it, you know, certain aspects of it. And then also Joe Strummer's own self-mythologizing did that as well. And when we consider his post-clash politics, there was an evolution that you write about. Uh, you, you say that in the late 1980s, Strummer began straying away from socialism and more of a, in favor of a more individualized form of ethical consumerism. And even toward the end of his life, he was becoming a critic of neoliberalism and was reversing his anti-American imperialism views. What was changing for Strummer in the, the waning years of his life? Well, if I could just um, answer that by going a bit further back, I think Strummer, um, first of all, so this is in his adult life, he becomes a hippie, which clearly has a humanist streak through it. Then he um, maintains some of the humanist aspects, even in the time that he's a socialist. But come the come the um, uh, early 1990s, when we're about to see in Britain the arrival of Tony Blair as leader of the Labour Party, who then becomes Prime Minister of Britain in 1997, he becomes very disillusioned with the left, not because he ends up being a reactionary and a cynic, far from it. He becomes disillusioned with the left because the left then becomes dominated by the likes of Tony Blair and New Labour, who make an accommodation to new lib to neoliberalism. And he becomes disillusioned with the radical left who are unable to uh, mount a sustained challenge to the likes of Tony Blair. So it's almost like for Strummer, it's the worst of both worlds. He sees Tony Blair as somebody who betrays um, 
any radical portent that might have come out of having a massive majority in the House of Commons. He also becomes disillusioned by the fact that the radical and revolutionary left, who he has some knowledge of, likes of the Communist Party and various Trotskyist parties, they become too small and weakened in order to have any influence. And I think that's those are the, the motivating factors, along with the continuation of this belief in humanism, which leads them to advocate for the environment towards the end of his life in a way that nobody else was doing, you know, no other musicians were doing at that time, but also then to say, well, if we can't beat capitalism, can we have a slightly better form of capitalism? And that's why he ends up, he doesn't ever use these terms, but essentially he was talking about having an ethical form of capitalism. And by that he meant, don't go and spend your money in Starbucks, McDonald's, Walmart, Wendy's, go, uh, you know, go and spend it in a local independent shop or cafe or whatever that's not part of a chain. And he uses this phrase, really, there's not any point voting anymore, which is ironic. We're talking today uh, when the votes are being counted for the um, Senate and the, um, the House of Representatives in Congress in America. He says there's no point voting. The only real vote you have is either the pound in your pocket if you're in, in Britain or the dollar in your pocket if you're in America, because he becomes disillusioned with the prospects of political change through the existing institutions, and therefore says, really, the only power that we have is when you're a consumer, not as a citizen, not as a a politically conscious citizen, but as a consumer. So that does mean that he very much uh, reduces and narrows his political aspirations and I think there's a lot of, you know, we can we can have a good sense that he was responding to those, um, the the domination of neoliberal ideology. We can understand that he was um, well-founded in doing that because neoliberalism now does, if you like, uh, rule the globe. But at the same time, it means that um, the ambition to have radical political change is almost taken off the agenda. So as these identity and personal and political changes are happening with Strummer in this last 10 to 20 years of his life, um, he's still active in music after The Clash. But you write that um, when he formed new bands, his lyrics were moving further away from social realism. What direction was Strummer taking with his new lyrics? I think the, the easiest way to characterize it would be uh, a concern for humanism, uh, an espousal of humanism, not in a particularly deep philosophical way. Um, of those people that know something about Strummer, they might well know that his humanism was summed up by a single phrase, which is, without people you're nothing, which was a, um, a little kind of monologue that he gave when he had um, uh, a, a programme on the BBC World Service that went out to the likes of 40 million people um, through the through the, the BBC, which is a state broadcasting corporation in Britain. And it sums up in, in two ways what he was about. He was a, a love of his fellow human beings, a, a concern for, for humankind, um, one in terms of, you know, uh, being against oppression, being against exploitation, but also concern for the environment that people were living in and how um, the forces of capitalism were destroying that environment. So he, he he very much ends up talking about those kind of things. Now, when it, when you look at lyrically, what he was he saying? So there's a, a song called Johnny Appleseed. Johnny Appleseed was the nom de plume or the pseudonym for uh, an early um, horticulturist in, in the United States um, who was advocating, you know, uh, careful uh, practices of husbandry of plants and so on. Not you know not doing it all for profit. In another song of the Mescaleros called Shatkar Donetsk, uh, which is a town, I think, which is in Ukraine, uh, he talks about um, the plight of, of, of immigrants who are seeking to leave their homeland. They don't do so willingly. They're doing it out of uh, economic destitution. And they come. They try to come to Britain. Uh, they pay uh, people traffickers to come to Britain. So he's very much uh, bound up with that. And that song um, had its origins in the fact that uh, two events happened in Britain in the run-up to that song being written. One was that um, there were 
Chinese migrant labourers uh, who were drowned um, when they were picking cockles off a beach and the tide came in, but they didn't know the tides and they were drowned doing that. And the other event was that a lorry was um, was uh, transferring people between France and Britain over the English Channel. And in order to get through the kind of border control, the lorry was sealed so that no voices could be heard from inside the lorry, but that also meant that they suffocated to death. So he was very much an understanding of that. And part and parcel of, of his humanism was the espousal of multiculturalism. On the one level, it just like cuisine, you know, it was a good thing that people should be able to taste different cuisines from uh, around the world. And London, where he spent a lot of his life, is very much a melting pot of that, as is the likes of New York or Sydney or Melbourne. So, you know, London being a world city like that. But he also believed it widens people's horizons and um, was a good way of counteracting the the kind of little England or a little, little Britain view that many people in Britain had. So that's what I mean about the humanism that stayed with him, but also became much more pronounced towards the end of his life. So it's been 20 years since Joe's passing, and we talked in the earlier uh, part of the conversation today that you say that his legacy won't really be fully assessed until 2052, which will be the 50th anniversary of his passing. How do you think the mythology of Joe will evolve over the next 30 years? Um, well, if I just make, I, I think that Joe Strummer um, did not himself do an awful lot to. Um, create the mythology at the time he was alive and obviously couldn't do afterwards. I think that many of the songs like Class City Rockers, um, uh, Radio Clash and so on, were about the music of the Clash and Clash followers. So I don't think he was he could really be stood accused of mythologizing his own role in that. Um, you know, even the song on, on Give Him a Rope, which was released 40 four years ago today, uh, Cheapskates is not a, about him, it's about the band as a whole. So I think it's other people that have mythologised Strummer in, in many ways. Now, of course, in some ways there's a good aspect to that, which is that mythologies are important ways of narratives being strengthened and disseminated. Um, the danger, of course, with them is how they were used and particularly elements of exaggeration and overestimation. But if we move away from the kind of uh, specific idea of mythology, what we do find is that there are many people who, particularly through cultural events, are keeping uh, the kind of Strummer, um, the idea of Joe Strummer and what he stood for alive. So there is the uh, Joe Strummer New Music Foundation. There are various Strummerville festivals um, there's, in fact, next week in London, there's the uh, a, a single kind of gig, celebratory gig, um, of which will commemorate the 20th anniversary of this um, uh, gig for the firefighters he played. There will clearly be events around um, the 20th anniversary of his death on the 22nd of December 2022. There's a thing called International Clash Day um, that happens. So I think there are many things that will help keep his... Um, ideas and legacy going. Um, now, those are things that if you know, almost, you know, we know they're going to happen before they happen because certain people are doing them. But there's also what we don't know will happen. Uh, and sometimes world events will um, allow people to kind of remember some of the things that Joe Strummer said and why they still have a resonance with today. Or other things will allow um, people to pick up upon what Joe Strummer is saying. And the example I'm going to give you is one that's already happened, but it's just to, you know, to give you a situation that the political dynamic can change and it can lead people to then come across Joe Strummer. So the, this um, is a, a young woman in, in New York City uh, um, about, um, uh, I think, roughly sort of, you know, eight, ten years ago, um, she happens to come across some Strummer stuff from the Mescaleros and she starts to get involved in left-wing politics in America. She then ends up being involved in uh, Bernie Saunders' campaign for the nomination for the for the Democratic Party for, for standards president. And as a result of those kind of two things, almost like two epiphanies going on, finding out about Joe Strummer 
and finding out about Bernie Saunders, she starts to go through the kind of back catalogue of Strummer, The Clash, The Mescaleros, everything else. And she finds out of that uh, a tremendous resonance in the likes of songs of Working for the Clampdown, where one of the key lines is, anger can be power, do you know that you can use it? And how that therefore feeds into her activities to support the Bernie Saunders campaign. Now, I think there are potentially those kind of events uh, at individual but collect more collective levels um, that can happen a- along the way. And that um, goes back to a point about Joe Strummer's lyrics, which I think I've already touched upon, which is they have a universality and a timelessness. Many lyrics from other bands are much more specific. Uh, they Sometimes they mention specific people, which makes them somewhat dated. But because Strummer talked about... Um, being uh, pro-liberty, pro-freedom, anti-oppression, anti-exploitation in general terms and only occasionally mention people like Victor uh, Hara, who was one of the left-wing folk singers who was murdered by the Pinochet regime in Chile in 1973. Because he only seldom mentions specific people, it's much more easy for his music and his lyrics to float across geographies of space and of time. Gregor, this has been a really fantastic conversation. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you, Bradley. My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Gregor Gall. His latest book is The Punk Rock Politics of Joe Strummer and is published by Manchester University Press.